Hi everyone, Jacob Austin here, owner of QS.Zone, and welcome to episode 24 of the Subcontractors Blueprint, the show where subcontractors will learn how to ensure profitability, improve cash flow, and grow their business. So I'm doing episode 24 today. It's the first show of the new year in 2024. 24 in 2024. Sounds good. Today's episode is going to be about design and build subcontracts and design liability. There are several different ways that you could be appointed to carry out design on a typical project for a main contractor. So you have the standard building subcontract with subcontractors design. You have a design and build subcontract. You have a minor work subcontract with design. And then there's the NEC form. Any of the NEC options can be used with subcontract design. It's a little bit more fluid. They give you the option to add in certain requirements and stipulations wherever you want. And it's more customizable, I think, the NEC form of contract. So it is straightforward to introduce that subcontract design into any subcontract. As it's the most common subcontract, I'm going to refer to the JCT design and build subcontract and we'll use that as the lens for today's episode. Let's start with subcontract design. So design liability. Any design that you produce as a subcontractor, you'll be liable for any errors, you'll be liable for faults that occur as a result of your design. So you are obliged under the subcontract and via tort law to make sure that your design is correct, to make sure that it is designed properly with skill and proper skill and care. One thing to be careful of is that where the design is stipulated, where the requirements are laid out, there, there is no requirement for you to design a fit for purpose item. So let's say you're encumbered with designing the concrete floor, the precast concrete floor, for a steel frame project. Somewhere along the line, there's a fitness for purpose statement within the requirements. So within the requirements, there's a fitness for purpose statement. Now, the problem with fitness for purpose is that it's a really woolly phrase and it brings in all manner of risk and all manner of issues. So by the courts, the courts have used and abused this phrase and used it to incorporate all kinds of requirements which aren't necessarily expressly written out. And the issue with it is that sometimes the employer will use the building for a particular purpose, but within his requirements he will state, I want a floor that can do X. I want you to design me a floor that fits in this space and it needs to carry this amount of weight. So you design to those criteria. But then the fitness for purpose element may take it above and beyond that. So, okay, they've said, I want it to cater to this weight. But, well, let's just say that that precast floor is actually in a large leisure facility. And part of the leisure facility is a gym. So within that gym, they're going to be lifting weights. And they're not just lightweights. We're talking deadlifts, several hundred kilograms worth of deadlifts and... Weights are perhaps going to be lifted up and dropped freehand onto the floor. And regardless of whether somebody has stated that within the employer's requirements, whether they've told you those are going to be the conditions that that floor is going to be used under, you are going to be expected to know that that is what the building is being used for 
why haven't you designed a floor that can withstand those kind of pressures? So it introduces the possibility of requirements beyond what is being specified. And that's the issue with fitness per for purpose. So why is that important to you? So as a subcontractor, you will have a professional indemnity policy if you are a designing subcontractor. If you're subletting your design, your sub-designer will have a professional indemnity policy. And the issue is that professional indemnity insurance only covers you for professional negligence. So this is a failure for you to exercise the reasonable skill and care that you might do in carrying out a design. So because fitness for purpose includes these additional requirements that may not be stated, what you're actually doing is exposing yourself to any risk beyond the level of reasonable skill and care up to the level of fitness for purpose. So you might be uninsured and that might cost you a fortune. We're talking if we're having to rip out and replace floors, going back to the same example, in a live building, the person using the building has lost the use of it, you are liable for all of that. Moving the, the tenant out, moving them into temporary accommodation, maybe setting them straight for loss of income that they've incurred whilst they've not been able to use the building and also refunding their customers who say subscription they haven't been able to use. And they might even argue, because this is a leisure facility, that some of their customers have now gone elsewhere, they've set up their membership with a different facility, and they've lost ongoing forward revenue. And that's the level of difference we're talking between fitness for purpose and just designing with the reasonable skill and care that would be expected of a professional. And this is why it matters so much, because the issue is that this duty to design to fitness for purpose goes beyond professional negligence and it's an absolute requirement that you've got to satisfy. So this makes it a greater demand and rather than just being liable for negligence and you would have to be proved to be negligent in the case of a regular design liability, the requirement under fitness for purpose is you've got to satisfy fitness for purpose for whatever the purpose is. So what you want to see is an express statement, a clear written statement in your subcontract to clearly state that you are designed to reasonable skill and care. And that then reduces the burden down to what will probably fit within your PI. And what it does is it introduces a requirement for somebody to prove that you've done something wrong, that you've done something negligent that you failed to use the reasonable skill and care that is expected of a professional designer. Then also, unlike the fitness for purpose test, even if something fails, if you're able to demonstrate that you've done all of the things that a competent person would have done, then you haven't done anything negligent and you therefore can't be punished for it. So hopefully you can see there's a huge disparity between those terms. On the one hand, you've got the likelihood of being punished for things that you haven't even thought about under the fitness for purpose argument. And on the other hand, you're able to say, hold up, it's not my fault it's failed. I've done exactly what anybody else would have done in my situation. And therefore, it's the requirements that must be wrong and not me. Now, hopefully that makes that clear why you need to watch out for fitness for purpose statements within your subcontract inquiries and within your subcontracts themselves. And if you find them, and hopefully you won't because contractors are savvy to these statements as well. But that's not to say that some won't slip through the net. If you find them, challenge them, and don't be afraid to walk away from the work if you can't negotiate those statements out. And if you didn't know this, of course, 
The phrase, reasonably fit for purpose, probably wouldn't raise any eyebrows. But now that you do, you know what to do. Okay, well next I wanted to have a look at the JCT subcontract. And if you look at the subcontractor's designed works clause, which is 2.2, this in typical JCT fashion uses far too many words to basically say, design and specify the works you've been asked to complete in accordance with the contractor's requirements and your subcontractor's proposals. It does also say, including any work that you've been asked to complete as a result of a variation. It then says you must comply with the contractor's directions for integrating your design into the wider contract works and the contract design. And then it refers you to clause 3.5.1.3, which is an interesting clause that says that you must comply with what the contractor requests you to whilst you're completing your design, unless within five days you tell the contractor that that is either going to compromise you completing the works under CDM or compromise the quality of your finished work or your ability to complete it. And this is basically giving you some sort of means of kickback if the contractor asks you to do something, but it's going to make it really hard for you to complete your work, or it's going to result in something illegal, i.e. non-compliant with CDM, then you basically have five days to submit a notice to that effect and tell them about it. Back to clause 2.2, it rounds up by reminding you that you have to act under the CDM regulations and specifically clauses 8 to 10. I'll let you look those up on your own time as they don't make exciting reading. But these are the general duties, the duties of a designer and the designs prepared or modified outside of Great Britain clauses. Perhaps I'll come back to these and do an episode on them at another time or if one of you puts me up to it. And that concludes clause 2.2. Now if you thought that was far too short and sweet, a whole further section, 2.13 and 2.24, also relates to the subcontract design. And then you have the design submission procedure, which under the subcontract is Schedule 7, under the main contract is Schedule 1, but they are a repeated version of the same thing. The idea under the JCT suite of contracts is that you support the contractor to submit their design as a designing subcontractor, and of course they've got their architect, structural engineer and whatever other consultants working directly for them. And the contractor has to coordinate all of that design or they can pass that design responsibility, that coordination responsibility onto an architect say. As the lead consultant they are tasked with designing everything and they may draw together the subcontract design, the structural engineer, civil engineer and so on. Make sure it's all coordinated and talks to each other, in theory at least. They then make sure it ties up with the CPs and the employer's requirements and present it to the employer to review. The design submission procedure is quite straightforward. There are some added complexities if the project is using some design management software or a contract management software where sometimes designs are submitted to a portal and then the administration of the design submission procedure is via that portal as well. It doesn't really make it any more difficult on a technical level, it's just that it's another technological barrier, another system for you to get used to when you're submitting your design. The principles by and large remain same or very similar and it goes a little bit like this. The contractor submits his drawings to the employer. Within 14 days of receipt of those drawings, the contractor should receive a response from the employer with a status either A, B or C. And these statuses mean under A, the document is perfect, the contractor can get on with the work. Status B, the contractor can proceed with the document, but there are some comments from the employer that need to be incorporated. And then status C, 
the contractor can't proceed and must resubmit the document for approval. So for A, that's straightforward, you just crack on and do the work. With B, presumably these are minor points and minor tweaks. I like it, but just change this a little bit. That might be used to select a color or to slightly tweak a finish. And then status C, this is requiring whole resubmission. So for statuses B and C, the design can't be returned with a status B or C without any comments. There can't just be a flat rejection with no reason behind it. And sometimes that might be, we need to see your calculations behind the design. Or it might be, if you're proposing something slightly different, they want to see how it works. They want to understand the specification, how it compares to what was in the contract originally. Or maybe the employer just doesn't like it. Now, if the contractor doesn't agree with the comments, they can notify the employer within seven days of receiving the comments that they don't agree and that they want an instruction and that it should give rise to a change. Now, if the employer has just rejected it because they don't like it and they've just given comments on it, then this should give rise to a change because the employer can't just reject something that has been designed and submitted and is in accordance with the contract. But the employer, in my experience, often misuses the process and will start rejecting things because they don't like it, because their preferences for something slightly different, something else. I recall a situation where we had a ceiling which was in the main atrium of a building that we were constructing and we submitted a design which as near as damn it reflected what was on the original architect's drawing and the employer decided they didn't like it. They started saying, hold on, I think I'll be able to see my structural steel through this. I want to be able to see this and nothing else. I don't want to be able to look down the panels and start seeing unsightly bits of the structure. And then started playing silly buggers about what they actually wanted, saying, now you're supposed to be the designer, make me a proposal. And well, our proposal, which was in accordance with the contract, they didn't like. And we got given a real runaround. And it ended up causing quite a significant delay to this particular section, which was the main entrance of the building. And actually, in hindsight, we should have said, no way, give us an instruction for what you want if you don't want this, because this is exactly what you've asked for. Or alternatively, we could have asked the employer to demonstrate from the contract what specifically they thought didn't comply with their requirements. And that should have then drawn a line under the matter. Either we'd get on with that. The employer, from my recollection, wouldn't have been able to justify what they were saying, so we'd have just been able to carry on with that design or resubmitted it and it should have sailed through or they should have then stipulated what they wanted instead and give us an instruction for that change. So if the contractor notifies the employer that he would consider the comments to be a change, the employer has then got seven days to come back to them and either restate or confirm the comment or withdraw it. So if the comment is withdrawn, this can change the document to status A. Otherwise, the contractor has to resubmit and this restarts the process. So they have to incorporate the comments and the employers then got 14 days to re-review everything. Now that sounds reasonably straightforward. So just to make it more interesting, the JCT adds in another couple of items. So they state that confirmation or withdrawal of a comment doesn't signify acceptance by the employer, that the relevant document or amended document is in accordance with the contract, nor that compliance with the employer's comment would give rise to a change. So the employer can effectively insist that the comment is incorporated without giving rise to a change. So that means you need to fight your corner on that one. The next comment says, if the contractor doesn't notify the employer that they think a comment gives rise to a change, then it shall be treated as if it doesn't. So this is another strike whilst the iron's hot issue or forever hold your peace. And finally, 
Neither compliance with the design submission procedure in Schedule 1 nor compliance with the employer's comments shall diminish the contractor's obligations to ensure the contractor's design documents and works are in accordance with this contract. And that means to say that even if the contractor has submitted the design, the employer has given it status A, crack on and build, and then they later realise that something doesn't comply with the contract, they can come back and pick on it later. Sometimes that might mean that the employer has spotted some of these things, but then decides to let you crack on and come back for a saving at a later date. Sometimes it might mean that they just haven't picked up on things. So say, they've asked you to design and construct a building to maintain a massive piece of plant, which is five metres tall. And during the design submission procedure, you submit drawings for a hangar door, which is only 4.7 metres tall. If they don't pick up on that and they approve the drawing, it goes to status A, they can still come back at a later time when they can't get their 5 metre tall piece of plant through the door and say, hold up Mr Contractor, you've fucked this one up. So it is in your best interest to comply with the employer's requirements for that very reason. Now just going back to those couple of clauses that we missed out, the contractor will follow largely the same process with you as their subcontract designer albeit they may water it down via amendments in their own conditions. They may also lengthen your submission timescale explicitly so that they've got a period of time to review it themselves, to pass that on to the client, and then for the client to do their 14-day review, albeit it's not in the contractor's interest in any way for them to delay you or for them to delay themselves by delaying submitting your design. So they typically want to work to the shortest timescale that they can. Of course, when everything is finished, you have to provide as-built drawings, and this of course goes hand in hand with the health and safety file and operation and maintenance manual file. You are bound to provide a license for the contractor and the employer to copy and use the subcontract design and reproduce any of it. For the purpose of maintaining and extending the building, they are not allowed to start using your design for purposes other than that. And they can typically reassign that right onto a subsequent purchaser of their building. And there is a statement to say, if the documents are used for any other purpose, that you're not liable for that. And speaking of liability, that brings us back nicely to 2.13, which we also mentioned earlier, which is about design liability and limitation. The intention of the subcontract is to create the same liability as if you were an architect designing specifically your section of the building, your section of the overall contract design, and so that you would have the same liability to the contractor in terms of being an appropriate professional designer who is able to complete that design adequately, and that you would carry the same liability to the contractor as they carry upstream to their employer. I think that about covers all of the meat on the bones when it comes to design and build subcontracts certainly the design aspect of them. My mission with this show is to help the million SME subcontractors working within the industry. If you've taken something away of value from today's episode, I'd love it if you'd share the show and pass on that value to somebody else who could benefit from hearing it. And thanks for tuning in. As ever, if you like what you've heard and you want to learn more, please do find us at www.qs.zone. That's the letters qs.zone.ze where you can subscribe to our training and support system for like-minded subcontractors. In there you'll find templates, how-to videos, interviews and more. It's less than the price of a cup of coffee per day and you can cancel any time. We're also on all your favourite socials at qs.zone. Thanks again 
I've been Jacob Austin, and you've been awesome.